The Word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-13. through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for the Gospel Proclamation is the text I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis of our theme for the third Sunday in Lent. We own the rock. There's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. And it has been my experience that when people get things wrong about Scripture, it's not because they're stupid. It's because they simply don't know. Ed, who used to be our janitor years ago, used to say, Can't know. And those of you that knew him as well as I did can hear that South Dakotan accent ringing in your ears when you hear that phrase. It's part and parcel to ignorance, and ignorance is not something we should be ashamed of. It's just something we should be aware of and ready to learn when our ignorance is challenged with new information. When I arrived at seminary, I was ignorant and even arrogant about it. The same with every job I had when I started. Each time I experienced any training in the Army and when I began my marriage to my beloved Marcy. In each scenario, I felt the epiphany moment when I realized I didn't know what I thought I knew. And that drove me to learn as much as I could after I realized my ignorance. When I went to Concordia Seminary St. Louis 27 years ago, they were making a bunch of changes to the curriculum and training for the student. We knew about it because each time we talked to an upperclassman, they would exclaim, wow, I didn't have to do that. That was optional. Now, for some national church body extracurricular classes on various areas, we may have needed growth in. We also knew that they had specifically added two more required classes to our academic requirements that previous classes did not have to take. In the long run, it was all good for us, and several of my brothers in my class of 2000 are professors at the seminaries and Concordia schools and high-level national church body leaders, too. But we didn't think that at the time. We were ignorant. 
I give thanks to God for those 42 professors now, for the amazing patience they showed toward us, especially when we pushed back on the changes and even were a little rude about it. They knew what they were asking was hard, but they wanted us to be prepared for what lay ahead of us. And they didn't want us to be not knowing, agnostic, or ignorant, as Paul refers to it today in the first letter to the church in first century Corinth. They were like spiritual fathers to us. And now that many have entered their heavenly rest, we cherish their love for us more than ever, knowing their efforts were not in vain. And because of them, we are no longer ignorant. Paul, who trained at the highest level for Pharisees, realized his spiritual children were likewise ignorant, literally agnostic and not knowing about the truth of Christ in their midst. Here, these people thought they knew it all. Good Jews raised on the values of the Torah, instructed in God's law, and yet they missed one fundamental truth. It was all about Christ Jesus, and they did not know that. They knew the amazing Passover story and the miracle it was that they were freed from slavery under Pharaoh. A story so astonishing to this very day, we still tell the story in movies and gasp at the magnificence of the power of Egypt and their powerlessness against the rushing tidal waves of the Red Sea. If you haven't seen the latest Exodus Gods and Kings movie with Christian Bale, seriously, Check it out. It has a very exciting ending. So they knew all about it, just like we do. For their parents told them the tales orally with more drama than any modern day movie could possibly inspire. But they missed the main point. They knew all the scenes. They knew the major plot. They were aware of the contributing factors and most prolific actors. But they were still ignorant. And that ignorance led to immorality. And that immorality led to idolatry. And idolatry always leads to an eternity where you don't want to be. And it all boiled down to this rock. A rock. Who knew something as simple as a rock could bring down the whole structure? I mean, it seems impossible unless you understand keystone. Keystones are the final rock in an arch. It's the one rock that must be sound for the entire pressure of the arch from both sides or upon this one rock at the top. So engineers and masons and craftsmen know exactly how important a single rock is if it is this rock. As we looked at the text this week with my translation group, just seeing a reminder about this rock that provided water for the Israelites in the desert is weird. I mean, did the rock roll behind them as they wandered in the wilderness? Did they put it on a cart and pull it behind on a donkey? Did it just push itself through the sand and keep up with the people? It's weird, right? Why this rock? Why any rock? Couldn't God just lead them from oasis to oasis for the water needs? The more we looked at it, the more we wondered why God did what he did. And that's okay, because... We were ignorant. Thanks be to God that he sent us Dale, our lay translator, that joins us every week. And he revealed how God has always worked in scripture with rocks. 
According to Dale's exhaustive research, rock is used 15 times in scripture. Five of those times, it's just literally talking about an actual rock. David picked up a rock and threw it at Goliath and killed him. And Stephen was stoned by rocks. But 11 times, it's figurative, using the rock symbolically to describe something else. And of those 11 times, nine are specifically talking about the word or Christ. Matthew 7, for example, talks about the foolish man that built his house on the sand instead of the solid rock, referring to Christ's wise words. Matthew 16 is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus tells him that his confession of faith is the very rock the church will be put, built upon. 1 Peter 2, 7-8 describes Jesus as the actual keystone that will cause false religions to stumble because they disobey the word of God. Look how the prophet Isaiah uses the exact same metaphor in chapters 8 and 44, describing Jesus as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And finally, the prophet Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue made of gold as the head, silver as the chest and arms, bronze for thighs, iron for legs, and feet of partly iron and partly clay, with a rock hewn by no human hand striking the statue and crumbles it to chaff as on the threshing floor. The precious metals representing Media, Persia, Greek, and later the Roman empires. And the description of the stone shows it's an eternal king who's not of this world. In fact, the theologian Uranius makes it clear his coming into the world was not by the operation of the human hands. So then we understand that his advent in human nature was not by the will of man, but by the will of God, the great God, showed future things by Daniel and confirmed by his son. Christ is the stone which is cut without hands. Who shall destroy temporal kingdoms and introduce an eternal one, which is the resurrection of the just? And Gregory of Nyssa made it even more clear, saying, Christ was born without a man. For as it is a new and marvelous thing that a stone should be cut out of the rock without a hewer or stone-cutting tools, so it is a thing beyond all wonder that an offspring should appear from an unwedded virgin. What so many are ignorant of, Paul knew from his study of Isaiah and Daniel, Jesus is the rock. And God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament alike were putting God to the test by denying that God was with them. They did not believe God was with them. They did not believe in Emmanuel, God with us. So Paul, in his love for his ignorant, erstwhile, agnostic, unknowing brothers and sisters, told them so they would not be ignorant anymore. Jesus is with them. Jesus is their rock and their cornerstone of eternal living. A few years back, I was quite the fan of the duo Lutheran musical performers Lost and Found. They have since fallen out of favor with me because of some political things they have done. But 
their stories and songs still ring true in my heart. One story was when they were performing in Germany and they wanted to endear their fans to them by speaking to them in their native tongue. After learning a few words, they wanted to end their more vigorous songs with the classic rock and roll statement, Rock on! So they learned that rock could be translated as Stein and on could be translated as Alf. So after the vigorous endings of the concert, they would leave the stage fist pumping in the air, telling their fans to Stein Alf, Stein Alf, Stein Alf. After a couple of shows, one of their families they stayed with told them they had a question about their performance. Of course, they loved to talk about what they said and did as a witness to the gospel, so they said they could ask anything they wanted. Well, they started. You keep using this phrase after your concerts that doesn't make sense to us. Thinking that they were talking about their rock-on chant, they were prepared to explain the American rock and roll culture at concerts they were trying to bring to Europe. They continued, You keep saying Stein Auf, which means stone on top of. What is the stone on top of and why? Yes, Sometimes we are stupid Americans. But I would argue, even though they told the story like they were stupid, ignorant Americans, I believe they theologically, accidentally, got it right. Because Jesus is and always will be the rock on top. For Jesus, when he was crucified for our sins, was put on top of one final rock. That rock, known as Golgotha, the skull, and it was pierced by the base of his cross, showing his final fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, to bruise the head of Satan himself by Jesus' death. We honor that rock with a rock of our own here at Faith. We remember the rock-hewn grave that Jesus laid in for our sins with our stone altar. And as Lent helps us reflect on our sins that put Jesus there, we can also reflect on the glory of Jesus that walked out of there alive to show us we are forgiven to live eternally with him, revealed by that empty tomb. And because of Jesus, we own that rock never to be given back to Satan ever again. Now, may that peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.